sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast we're very happy to have uh, Vanessa Eakins, Councillor Vanessa Eakins, on the line to talk to us through what happened at the Rouse County Council meeting the other day. Vanessa. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? And happy summer solstice to you too. Happy summer solstice to you. Yes, it's only, only Monday before we have the full summer solstice. I know. It's exciting, isn't it? Yes, yes. Great weather for wearing heavy clothing and eating ridiculous amounts of uh, overcooked food. Oh, well, hopefully you're speaking for yourself there because I'm not going to be doing that. Really? <laughs> what are you going to get up to? Not a lot. No? No. Oh, well, okay. That sounds like a pretty good plan, actually. I I'm, reckon that's a great plan, yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot might suit me too, right down to the ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah, up. so um, at um, Wednesday's meeting, Rouse County Council met to discuss a recommendation from... Uh, the general manager that we proceed with the Danoon Dam. Yes. Um, that was what was printed in the business paper. So much anticipated meeting. Not many meetings of Rouse County Council have drawn quite so much public attention, I suspect. It's a shame, actually, because they usually, you know, we talk about really important stuff like water supply. Yeah, it's vitally important. <laughs> vitally important. So in 2014, Rouse County Council identified that um, our future water supply would be focused around groundwater and recycled water. And so we commenced spending millions of dollars on investigating these scenarios. Yep. So it came a bit of a surprise when we were presented with some documentation saying, well, there's not a lot of groundwater around and um, that the Danoon Dam looked like a more plausible option than any of the others based solely on cost. Right. Right. So at that meeting um, on Wednesday, I proposed that we um, cease all work on the Danoon Dam. Yes. And that we continue to implement a little bit of groundwater extraction from Marham Creek and Alstonville, in Al and, Alstonville and, and treat that and distribute that. And that gives us some additional water supplies for about 10 years. Right. And that gives us a really interesting lead time to examine the use of purified, recycled water. Fantastic. Yeah, it is fantastic. I think it's the way of the future. All of the world water experts are saying that we need we can't rely on rainfall for our water supply in the future because it's irregular and it's going to be, dry, you know, less of it. Um, so what we, more than 50% of our future water supplies need to be from other sources. Um, and recycled water is perfect for that because it doesn't matter if you're in a drought, people still flush their toilets, shower and do their laundry. So you've got a guaranteed supply of water there already. Yep. Um, it's technology that is used all around the world and throughout Australia, just not in New South Wales. So we're just um, hoping that we're going to lead the way and uh, demonstrate that recycled water can be, or water can be purified and recycled and distributed for use. And one thing to remember about this is we've got enough water in our region now. This is water for people who may or may not even come here. If development and uh, proceeds as people expect, well, in about 10 years or so, we might need to bring on some other water sources. Yes. Yep. So this is about future water. It's not about... Um, water for our existing population. No, I mean, we're well well served for our needs right now, aren't we? Which, uh, yeah. we, we get by. Yeah, and we are. And, and one thing I'd, I'd suggest people remember is that only 2% of household water is used for drinking and cooking. Yeah. The rest of it, most of the water, 98% of our beautiful, clean water, very expensively processed water, goes straight down the toilet, the laundry and the shower. And mm. so um, that's sort of crazy but it's there and we need to repurpose it 
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we've got uh, a ten-year reprieve. Is that is that the upshot? Yeah, we've got ten years. We've got existing groundwater resources, and even more than that. I mean, we could start bringing on more groundwater that's at the Triagra Sands, but um, I'm a bit concerned about the environmental aspect associated with that because that's sucking out groundwater that's used by those coastal ecosystems. Yep. And I don't see why we should be stripping the environment of water when we've got a perfectly good supply in south and east Lismore sewage treatment plants and in Ballina and Lennox Head sewage treatment plants. Yep. And then, yep. of course, and there's and also the, the water efficiencies. Water. And... Well, think about what that water is going into. You, you're taking that water, you're cleaning that water, and you're putting it straight back in your toilet and your laundry. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so absolutely. You don't and drink it, the other non, the other non rainfall dependent. The other non-rainfall dependent uh, sources of water, of course, is water efficiency and there's even water tanks has been talked about. There's water significant... tanks are such a great idea and Rouse offers very generous rebates for rainwater tanks. So I would get at least two. You should have at least 10,000 litres on your household. That's the most effective form. Um, and you can plug that into your toilet and laundry and use that water um, or get a little one for outside your kitchen for drinking yeah, but I think people need to be a bit more responsible for their water use because it, it isn't just a matter of turning on the tap and water comes out. No. A huge amount of thoughts, thinking and planning and money goes into making sure there is water for that tap. And I think people should take personal responsibility for having a rainwater tank and, and monitoring their use. Absolutely. And, of course, there's, um, you know, you, you must be excited. You've been one of the leading voices in this, uh, uh, you know, community campaign of, uh, you know, for, for, for sense and reason on this. I mean, there were, what, almost 1,300 submissions made, 91%. 1,300 submissions, 90% of people said they didn't want it. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about the option of recycled purified water. I mean, as I said, technology is used all around the world and throughout Australia. Um, yeah, but... Um, yeah, basically, we had a very galvanised community that wrote submissions and, and that was brilliant to see. I love it when the community get engaged in, in these important issues. Um, we also had the um, Aboriginal Native Title Association um, write to Rouse saying that they did not support Janoon Dam because of the significant cultural heritage issues associated with the site where it was proposed. Um, so it was really good to see all these different organisations and people um, get involved and and um, and have their say. I, I really wanted to get your take on the, the you know you were in the room as the and yeah. you know pr making the proposal of the and how what was the feeling like? I mean you know there was a, I, I understand that it was actually a a line ball decision. It came down to the wire. Yeah, it was chair gripping drama. It was absolutely nerve wracking. <laughs> Had no idea how that boat was going to go. Yeah. Um, at the time, the chair said he realised that it was going to be a 4-4 vote and he decided that he couldn't use his casting vote to um, progress the Danoon Dam and he really voted with his heart um, and in support of the um, Aboriginal custodians. Wow. And what's, who's the chair again? Keith Williams is the chair. He's a councillor from Ballina. So the way Rouse County Council works is there. Uh, two councillors nominated from each of the councils that derive water from Rouse County Councils to a Rocky Creek Dam, and that's Lismore, Byron, Ballina and Richmond Valley. So there are eight councillors in the room, so it was a 4-4. Um, it looked like being a 4-4 vote. And, um, yeah, so Councillor Richardson... I mean, Councillor um, Williams decided to vote for recycled purified water because he was really concerned about the impact that building a Danoon Dam would have on Aboriginal cultural heritage. Well, good on him. Kudos to uh, Councillor Keith Whit Absolutely. Williams. Absolutely. It was a really hard decision for him to make because he actually supports dams and the emotion in the room was palpable. Um, and people, you know, councillors had spent an, a, a weeks and months, you know, researching this information and agonising over a decision. It was not an easy decision to make. Um, but, yep, we're excited about the future opportunity. I don't think we just keep building dams that destroy the environment and cultural heritage and the rely from rainfall overflow from an existing dam. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense, no, really. crazy, And in the time of drought, you, you, you've got massive evaporation occurring off dam surfaces and no recharge into them, whereas... No. In a you know re with recycled purified water it's there because we don't reduce our water consumption by much. No, no. 
oh, look, uh, you know, Vanessa, there'll be people out there cheering as they hear this. Uh, you know, you, you've, you've won a big one. It's, it's a big win for democracy and a big win for the community. Thank you so much for all of your efforts. Oh, well, it's it's all due to every... It was a team effort, that one. <laughs> due yeah. to the councillors who spend all their time thinking about it. Due to the community who put in all that energy to um, inform themselves about what the alternatives were and to um, and lobby for those alternatives. So, yep. It's, yep. Yeah, it's pretty interesting and really excited about the future opportunities. So now we've just got to make sure that the administration... Um, that is Rouse County Council, take it seriously and that we invest significant funds into researching um, how the recycled purified water would work. I think the best way at this stage is if we build a treatment plant at the wastewater um, places like in South Lismore and, um, and do it there and look at distribution. So we'll be looking to invest some money into those reports and see how um, that technology works and how it cooks hooks into our existing um, reticulation system and also really keen to look at returning some of the land that was bought for the Danoon Dam back to the Aboriginal stakeholders. Yes, uh, some long overdue uh, justice uh, there. Yep. All right. Look, thank you, Vanessa. That's uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for getting us up to speed with that exciting uh, development it, for it Christmas. What a Christmas exciting. present Rouse has given to us all. What a, what a present. And um, I urge people, if you haven't um, seen your councils in operation, you should. Yeah. Like, it's pretty thrilling, really, uh, see decisions made about, you know, stuff that are really stuff that's really crucial for us, like our roads, our, our rubbish, our water supplies. So... Um, you can watch most of these meetings um, online from the comfort of your home, but if you're a real thrill seeker, you turn up to the chambers themselves and watch them being made. <laughs> it's um, it's it's pretty exciting, and it's democracy at work, as you said. And yeah, in February, I think um, our councils will come back for some more exciting stuff. Yeah, well, hopefully people will get in and maybe uh, send off an email of thanks to the, the councillors to say uh, good good. Well done. I think that's really important, actually, to let people know that you support the decision. Yeah, so yeah. so do you know, well, who were the councillors who voted for this? Who should people send that to? Um, Councillor Darlene Cook. Yep. Um, and myself, Vanessa Eakins from Lismore City Council. Then from Byron Council, you had um, Simon Richardson and Basil. Um, Basil Humphrey and... Then from a balloner, obviously, Keith Williams, who's the chair at Rouse. Yeah. So I think they'd really appreciate um, an email or some sort of indication of, of support. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that's and a great And even idea. if you send it to the other councillors from Richmond Valley and, and um, the councillor from balloner who didn't support it and let them know why you think it's important that we investigate recycled water. Yeah, that's right. Fair, fair call. Uh, you know, they, 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 they didn't get their uh, preferred option up, but it's good if everybody gives them a civil pat on the back for doing their job and, uh, you know, we recommend that they get behind the new de- the decision. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good one. Okay, okay, Vanessa, look, we should move on, but thank you so much for all of your time today and, and always. Oh, well, thanks for um, giving me the opportunity to speak. No, always. Anytime. Take care. Merry Christmas to you and yours. I will certainly have a great summer. Thank you. Enjoy your summer solstice. Bye. Bye. Well, that was Councillor Vanessa Eakins. Uh, She was reporting back from the Rouse County Council meeting uh, just, I think it was Wednesday, was it, where they made the final decision? Yes. On the the damming of Danoon, no more. And you don't have to be a governance nerd to find these things thrilling. No. Well, maybe you do. Well, I think... (laughs) Here's a story that should get everyone smiling this Christmas. According to Reuters, Lloyds of London is scaling back its exposure to coal and oil sands. The commercial insurance market said in its first sustainability report on Wednesday in a reversal of its traditional hands-off approach to climate change strategy. Pablo Brait is a campaigner for market forces and he's been working along with millions of Australians to stop the Adani carbon bomb coal mine in the Galilee Basin in North Queensland from going ahead. He joins us today to share some Christmas cheer. 
Pablo, thank you for joining the Environmental as Anything Christmas special. Uh, you're very welcome. It's a real Christmas story, this one, I think. It's, uh, you know, against the odds and uh, with, uh, in the eyes of the world have been upon it. Adani finding themselves increasingly unlikely to be able to build their uh, mega carbon bomb mine up in the Galilee Basin. But market forces have got some good news about the insurance and Lloyds of London. Can you fill us in on what's going on there? Yeah, certainly. Lloyds of London is an insurance marketplace. It's a really significant source of insurance for the global energy sector. In 2018, I think it was something like 40% of global insurance premiums in the energy sector were through Lloyds of London. It also looks as though as the kind of mainstream insurance industry has been shifting, particularly away from thermal coal insurance, Lloyds seems to have been picking up the slack. And that's certainly what happened with the Adani Carmichael coal project. It was being insured by mainstream insurers up until the end of 2019. So their insurers were AXA, Liberty Mutual, HDI, you know, insurers from, from Europe and North America. And they dropped the project in 2019. And from the information we have, the Lloyds of London market picked up the slack and Adani and through their broker, Marsh was able to source insurance to continue construction because the project is well underway in terms of construction um, to keep that construction going into this year. But then what's happened this week was that Lloyds of London, under pressure from both the Stop Adani campaign and a global campaign called Insure Our Future, put forward their first ever climate change policy. What it's telling them to do is essentially phase out taking on new insurance policies for thermal coal, tar sands and Arctic oil projects throughout 2021. And so, and to stop doing that by the 1st of Jan, 2022, and then a total phase out of exposure of any insurance exposure to those industries by the 1st of Jan, 2030. Now, there are pretty serious loopholes and gaps in this policy, but it does really put the pressure on um, in terms of Adani Carmichael, because it is a new thermal coal project, because we know that two of its existing insurers through the Lloyds market have promised not to renew. And so it may be the case that when its policies come up for renewal next year, it may not be able to find any new insurers to pick up the slack. That is good news. I mean, that, that you're talking about essentially the oldest uh, insurer, commercial insurer in the world, pretty much invented the concept of commercial insurance and very conservative in all of that. And perhaps, uh, you know, this is, as you say, the final nail in the coffin for uh, Adani's hopes to renew its, uh, uh, its insurance via Lloyd's. But it's got to be a seriously uh, a final blow for the, for the Carmichael uh, coal mine full stop. It can't go ahead without insurance, can it? Well, it can, but that would mean that Adani's investors and contractors and creditors take on the risk. And it's possible that that will not be acceptable to those individuals and those companies uh, to do that. Lloyds of London could be the last roll of the dice. And so we, for, for the insurance anyway. And so we are, um, you know, we're calling on the Lloyds of London syndicates to really clarify their stance on this. Over the course of, of this year, we've convinced together with some great work through the entire Stop Adani grassroots network um, 17 Lloyds of London syndicates have come out and said, we will not insure this project, including two I mentioned before, Polo and Aspen, who are currently insuring it. So they've said we won't renew any of our policies. But there's still quite a few others that have not said anything, despite being asked numerous times. And so with this Lloyds policy now quite clearly stating the position of the Lloyds Corporation, Lloyds of London, that they don't want these sorts of projects insured through their market. We still have work to do to get those syndicates on the record to say they won't pick up the slack and won't cover a Danny Carmichael. It's not quite a done deal yet. So there's still um, need for action on this and you're calling on people to, uh, to get involved. What do, you, what do you want our listeners to do? If you go to our website, if you go to the news section, you'll see a little news item on this Lloyd's announcement, you know, which we just published recently. And there's an action there. You can send an email to some of those remaining syndicates that have yet to speak out and ask them to, 
you know, to, to take a position that they will not ensure the Carmichael Coal Project. Local Stop Adani groups are still also trying to get individual syndicates to, to make these announcements as well. So if there is one near you, get in touch and see how you can help. Well, Pablo, that's a, a fantastic uh, news story for, for Christmas, really. That's a bit of a gift. Thank you so much and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Happy New Year. No worries. Enjoy the, uh, the transition to renewable prosperity. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. That was Pablo Bright from Market Forces. Twenty twenty has been a shocker of a year for a lot of us and for a lot of different reasons. Very few have had it rougher than the fossil fuel industry. I suspect that long after we're all immune to COVID-19, 2020 will be remembered as the turning point for the fossil fuel industry and for the climate that we all depend upon. Our next guest has become a bit of a regular on Environmental As Anything, keeping us up to date on the details of the transition to renewable prosperity. And I must say, it seems that he's becoming more cheerful every time I speak to him. Tim Buckley is the Director of Energy Finance Studies Australia South Asia for the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. And he joins us today to talk about why he thinks China's ban on our coal is probably less of a threat to Australia's coal industry than the international movement for climate ambition. Tim Buckley, thank you for joining Environmental As Anything's Christmas special. Sean, good afternoon. Nice to be with you again. Season's greetings. It's been a huge year for uh, energy economics. And I know you, uh, last time we were spoke, you were ebullient uh, about the prospect that we might actually be back on track for the possibility of reaching the Paris climate goals. How are you feeling now? And how would you see the year that's just passed? Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, to pick you up on the word we, uh, I was just reading uh, Bob Carr's latest op-ed about how we, Australia, are failing to do our fair share of the heavy lifting and how we are getting carried along by the rest of it. And in fact, the idiocy and ideology of the uh, extreme right is still very much in control of our federal government. And uh, they're now trying to use a Senate inquiry to hold back the inevitable financial tide, the weight of the global financial markets. And Scott Morrison, George Christensen, Frydenberg are all going to stand there and try and hold back the tide. It's going to be uh, farcical to watch. But Nevertheless, I am probably even more bullish than I was when I spoke to you last. Um, it has been a phenomenal end to the year. And uh, in fact, I, it's literally getting ridiculous. I can't keep up with the number of announcements because they are literally just coming so thick and fast. I, uh, I was preparing a presentation for India about climate change and uh, I wrote it. I sent it off 10 o'clock at night and uh, the next morning when I was giving the presentation, there were six updates that were already uh, just in one, literally in eight hours that had come through. And each one of them were staggeringly important. And uh, I mean, we could even talk about them because just in literally one eight hour period, we had announcements from around the world showing how rapidly global corporations, global investors, international governments and global financial institutions are acknowledging the science, embracing the opportunity and trying to avoid the risk. And I mean, the, probably the biggest announcement was the one from the Lloyds of London banking group, like 40% of the world's insurance market in one night just said, like, no, coal is out, coal is a stranded asset. We are now no longer going to provide insurance to coal in one swell swoop. Now, obviously, uh, Scott Morrison's going to be doing his absolute darndest to make sure that never happens in Australia because that would be um, undemocratic or uh, it would certainly annoy his donors and it would certainly annoy the fossil fuel companies. But yeah, it's just, I mean, that was just one announcement and there were literally six of them. And uh, I mean, there are actually some pretty interesting ones like uh, Nippon Steel in Japan and Imposco of Korea. So two of the biggest steel companies in the world forgot to read Morrison's memo and they committed to net zero by 2050. Now, 
I don't know. I mean, they must be stupid or idiots or um, ideological because obviously Scott Morrison would be none of those things. No. Um, but, of course, they would happen to probably be two of Australia's biggest coke and coal customers as well. So uh, along with China, our biggest customer for coke and coal, they've all said effectively on a 30-year time frame they won't be using our coke and coal. And, um, but we should deny it. We should just defend the right to pollute the world for as long as we can and let's bring on the bushfires as fast as they possibly can. I mean, it's just pathetic what our Canberra government is doing at the moment. Not it, that I it, feel strongly about it. No, no, clearly you're uh, very mild-mannered on the whole subject. <laughs> no, very appropriately uh, exercised, I would say. It's, uh, it clearly is frustrating. You must have been watching with interest as New South Wales declared itself, uh, you know, a leader in the pack to go for renewable energy superpower status and the rest of the country all competing for that same uh, prize, it looks. I just think Scott Morrison is going to either pivot or die on his stake. But uh, if he doesn't pivot, he's got absolutely no chance. The idea that he's going to go and tell the new president of America, our big military ally, oh, by the way, I'm not with you. Your top priority, climate change, driving the world, being a world leader on energy, on climate, on exports, on investment, on employment. I mean, I was just reading Joe Biden tweeting, just this morning about all the jobs that will come to Americans because of embracing the opportunity. But no, Scott Morrison's going to pick up the phone and tell the American president, no, I'm not with you on this. No, I'm going to fight with China and now I'm going to fight with America. I'm just going to be spineless and stupid. It seems like what, uh, what you know, Sir Humphrey Appleby might have called a very courageous uh, decision, Prime Minister. As you say, that, that leaves uh, us basically skewered between our, our greatest ally and our greatest uh, uh, trading partner. And, and we're, 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 you know, but, but of course, China seems to have decided that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't want to be one of the naughty kids. It's not having uh, coal delivered to it this Christmas. We've got, what, 80 ships, I heard one report saying that we had 80 ships, hundreds of thousands of tonnes of Australian coal sitting outside uh, ports of China. I mean, is this the death knell? Is this the final sort of straw that's going to break the back of, a, of the Australian coal industry, do you think? Of oh, Scott Morrison. Of Scott Morrison, yeah, well, the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, exactly, because I mean, the irony is the extreme far right have just screwed the coal industry far better than we've done. I mean, all of our ranting, all of our work, all of the IFA research, all the podcasts you've done, and there's no better, no better enemy of the coal industry than Scott Morrison. It's just bizarre. I mean, that's the stupidity and ideology that rules the uh, LNP federally at the moment, and. I mean, it, it again, you mentioned the Liberal National Party in New South Wales as taking a sensible strategy. It's just a direct contrast, and we should highlight that at every opportunity, that it's not about what side of politics you see. It's just about do you accept the science? Are you forward thinking or do you want to destroy the planet? It's that stupid and that simple. And clearly, for all the sins of the New South Wales government on this this cross, they've decided they're not going to die on that cross. They're going to get out of the way. They're going to allow $32 billion of regional investment in, a, in New South Wales. They're going to embrace the jobs. They're going to embrace the exports. They're going to embrace decarbonisation and deflation. They're going to drive the Australian or New South Wales economy and bugger those idiots down in Canberra. And... Uh, at some point, Scott Morrison's got to actually change. And I mean, I'm picking on him. I've just read Bob Carr's op-ed and I then read Joe Biden's comments. And then you look at, okay, sensible leadership and then there's Canberra. And uh, I mean, you say we're, we're actually annoying both our, our key military ally and our key trading partner. Worse than that, we're actually going to dance in the middle. I mean, I use the phrase that we're a little mouse between two sparring elephants but we're in a mouse that's deliberately getting in the middle and waving a big flag saying stomp on me I mean, how stupid can you be yeah no who, who'd have thought we would see hope coming from the direction of china for that but uh it does look that way um but um you know you, you're um you, you're obviously uh, seeing the possibilities for uh the uh, you know australia becoming a net zero emissions leader uh, you know, there's there's there is movement in Canberra. So it, again, it goes on uh, outside the halls of the uh, the Liberal National Party and, and away from the scummo regime. But 
But uh, you know, Zali Stegel recently introduced her uh, her climate bill, and uh, and and there are certainly signs of of, of positive movement uh, in the parliament, aren't there, in terms of uh, changes to, in in the right direction? Absolutely, and, and Zali Stegel's climate bill is a really good reference. I actually was just on the website, but they've had so many submissions. The website had crashed this morning. Um, and I was literally looking at the Australian AI group, the Australian Industries group. I was looking at the Origin Energy submission. I was looking at all these big corporates. I mean, fossil fuel companies, AI groups been defending climate uh, denialism for a decade. Now, all of a sudden, it's saying, look, the world's moved. Let's just get on with it and look at the opportunities. But, like, there have been literally hundreds or I don't know, I couldn't get to the end because the website crashed. Uh, there were literally uh, probably a thousand submissions and half of them were from big industry leaders. Wow. It was an impressive list of leaders of corporations and exactly the sort of people that normally would be voting for the Liberal National Party in Canberra. And yet, um, no, anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. But yes, there are some sensible politicians. Um, I mean, I just saw a picture of Joel Fitzgibbon, but let's leave him aside. Okay, he's on the extreme far right now. He's probably gone north of Canavan. Um, but yeah, there are some sensible politicians. I don't know. There are not not that many. I don't see the ALP showing a lot of spine at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I don't see them showing a lot of leadership. They seem to have been browbeaten by uh, Joel Fitzgibbon into being silent on this globally pressing critical issue that every other government leader, every other corporate leader, every other financial institutions leader. I mean, Larry Finker, it's just bizarre watching him talk last week and he's talking about this tsunami of change and how the asset allocation is just transforming before his eyes, how inflows into ESG funds have doubled this year, and how he's then castigating firms like Adani for building, well, no, he's castigating State Bank of India for funding Adani for building the last coal mine in the world, in the Western world, and uh, BlackRock. Who would have expected them a year ago to be calling out State Bank of India? And yet we've actually now had 10 globally significant financial institutions in the last week, call out State Bank of India for lending to Adani to build a stranded asset in Australia, saying, well, that's actually contrary. We've lent you money to invest in India. We've lent you green bonds. We funded your green bonds to invest in zero emissions technologies in India. And instead, you're giving it to one of the most carbon intensive projects in the world. And that's actually contrary to what we've agreed our State Bank of India is an arm of the Indian government, but it's actually very critically reliant on global capital. So when Allianz and KFW of Germany and AXA of France and BlackRock of America start to call them out, which is what's happened, um, that's how far the, the world has changed in the space of 12 months. We've got a long way to go, but it means we leave 2020, as you said, with an enormous amount of hope that maybe two degrees can be achieved, maybe less than two degrees, whereas at the start of this year, there was zero chance of that. Yeah, yeah. And and BlackRock has a lot more weight than uh, somebody invading the pitch at the cricket, although for, for a lot of Indians, that might have been the uh, the image that really goes, came home. Uh, oh, look, all power to those two guys, absolutely. And uh, it's really important for the Indian public to see that they are supported by Australians, irrespective of what our... Um, far-right leader thinks um, that the common person in Australia is actually supporting India, wanting to help India develop energy independence and to decarbonise their economy and invest in low emissions, low-cost sources of Indian power. Um, yeah, so certainly a lot of the Indians I speak to uh, say that's a sign of support for their country and uh, SBI is feeling a little bit of heat at the moment, as it should be. And... Um, I mean, I was just on a call last night with 100 executives from NTPC, one of the three biggest power companies in the world. And I mean, the conversation started by, look, we all agree coal is in a gradual long-term terminal decline. What we want to argue about, what we want to debate with you is what's the trajectory, how fast will that, this occur? And my response was, don't go too fast. I mean, you guys in India didn't cause the problem. We did, America did, Europe did. China did. You guys should have a slow trajectory, uh, but they certainly agreed. And they said, oh, by the way, we'll probably commission the last coal plant in India in 2025. Now, this is the biggest power company in India by a country mile. 
And when they say commission, they mean finish construction. They've already started construction. So mm. it, was, it was an admission that they'll probably never build another coal-fired power plant again beyond the ones they've already started building. And, in fact, their CEO, their chief uh, executive officer, Gadeep Singh, has already committed to that publicly. So uh, right, while Australia, while we've got idiots like Canavan trying to build another coal-fired power plant, countries who actually need huge amounts more energy to lift their 1.4 billion people out of poverty, they're saying they're not going to build a single new coal-fired power plant. So chalk and cheese, the uh, ideology is rampant down in Canberra. Yes. Uh, so um, just to wrap it up, I would like to just on, on the question of China, do you think that the Chinese are going to blink? Do you think they're going to say, oh, no, sorry, we, we've changed our mind, we'll take those shiploads of coal? Or what will actually happen to those shiploads of coal sitting outside Chinese ports now? Are they going to just dump them at sea or are they going to bring them back home? What do you think they'll do with them? Well, we don't want them. It's not like we've got any use for them. So we'll probably just sell them at 20, well, 90 cents in the dollar to the Japanese or to the Koreans or to the Taiwanese or 80 cents in the dollar to the Indians and have an extra two weeks shipping. So it, coal is coal. It can just be re-transported. Um, it's not like it's being unloaded. Um, will China blink? Who knows? I mean, the Chinese government is the Chinese government. They are a totalitarian state. But when you look at the investments that China is doing right now and what it's done in the last 10 years and where it's saying it's going to go, what they're really doing in a ham-fisted way is saying that they don't want to keep relying on imported energy. They want to build energy security. They want to build domestic energy production, now, whether it's wind, solar, nuclear, hydro, coal, or even gas. Uh, they will prefer domestic stuff. Now, that's exactly the conversation I'm having with India. It's exactly what India talks about. So they don't talk so much about climate change, although having to do credit to NTPC, it was a three-hour discussion and half, half of that, an hour and a half, was about climate change. It was about extreme weather events. I mean, um, we wouldn't even mention that in Australia. Mm. Yet half of the conversation was all about climate change and how this is it, it's in critical that India actually help carry it and do their fair share of the heavy lifting because Scott Morrison's not going to. Um, they're too polite to say that. But sorry, back on China. Um, the big question in my mind, and I think we'll see some interesting research out of the ANU, Australian National University, in January, highlighting the dramatic investment China's put in domestic infrastructure particularly railways and grid, like we've all heard that they've got the biggest grid in the world, that it's the most modern grid in the world. Um, okay, it's China. Of course, it's huge, but it's also the most modern and they've really, they've spent trillions of dollars upgrading it in the last decade. But what they've also done is invested hundreds of billions of dollars in upgrading their railway system and coal in China is transported by railways. So part of this was to get them off uh, using lorries, trucking coal a thousand kilometres by road, but it also opens up Mongolia. Now, Mongolia's got thermal coal and it's got coking coal. That is a direct competitor to Australia. Unlucky for the Mongolians, they've only got one end market and it's China. And so they've built these railways. So there's a study ANU's done, which is to highlight the, uh, the new infrastructure that's coming on stream as we talk that is actually behind why China's actually pick this fight with Australia over coal because they actually want to get off imported coal entirely because they've got more coal than they can poke a stick at in the home market and they've actually just committed to exiting coal entirely within 40 years. So if you're going to use someone's coal, you're better off using your own, have investments and employment in your domestic economy and then ramp up your construction of wind and solar at a speed never seen before in world history. Oh, that's right, except in China. In 2017, they built 53 gigawatts of solar, like as much as the whole of the rest of the world combined in one year, 53 gigs. Now, they, I think, just committed to probably building 150 gigawatts a year by the end of this decade and doing it every year for the next 60 years or the next 40 years. So that's how they deliver net zero emissions. And it's astronomically large and uh, ambitious and it will involve huge investment huge employment, all in domestic decarbonisation. So they don't want to use Australia as their quarry of dirty, polluting, 
carbon intensive assets of the future. They want to progress to technologies of the future. And uh, unfortunately, it's probably hit Australia a lot faster than we thought it would, but it's probably a good thing. Yeah, well, we have seen it coming. So good for them and good good for you, Tim. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll put a, a Santa hat in the post for all of that, uh, the presence of good news that you've just brought us there. Happy Christmas, mate. Same to you and to your listeners. Thanks, Sean. That was the Director of Energy Finance Studies for IEFA, Tim Buckley. According to our next guest, the transition to a circular economy is underway across industries, sectors and communities. However, the pace of policy reform, design outcomes and practical action in Australia varies considerably. A key question is whether the initiatives existing or proposed can deliver against the fundamental principles of what constitutes a circular economy or are they yesterday's recycling projects rebranded to appear more circular? Part of that growing momentum for the circular economy is the worldwide movement for the right to repair. And in Australia, uh, our Productivity Commission has released an issues paper this week on the right to repair and have actually instituted an inquiry which is calling for submissions from the public. John Gertzakis is an adjunct professor at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney. And he joins us to talk about how our Christmases can be made a bit more sustainable. John, thank you for joining the Environmental Is Anything Christmas special. My pleasure, Sean. It's great to be here. Yeah, uh, yeah season's greetings. We're uh, obviously turning, uh, turning the corner into the... Uh, the time of the year where people give each other uh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, the ghost of Christmas past was a bucolic idol of handmade gifts and homemade meals. The, the ghost of Christmas present seems to have a uh, dystopian vision of, of disposable garbage being handed from, <laughs> to, to people who never want it. If you were the ghost of Christmas future, yeah. what would your vision uh, for the Christmas future be, John? I, uh, I would look to... Uh to celebrating rituals and enjoying the experience uh, rather than uh, contributing to uh, consumption unchecked. Um, I think the idea of uh, gathering, getting together if you can, and completely overdosing on Christmas pudding is a far better option than getting a box of hankies as far as I'm concerned. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but it's not just a box of hankies these days, is it? There's all sorts of electronic uh, gifts and machinery of, of various kinds of entertainment and communications uh, devices, and uh, a vast quantity of it ends up in landfill, doesn't it? What's, what's going wrong there, John? Uh, the, the whole area of, of consumption, of shopping, uh, you know, has become a pastime in itself. Uh, once upon a time, uh, and this is sounding a bit romantic, but once upon a time, you'd go to the high street, you'd go to your local market um, shopping centre to get the essentials, uh, buy your uh, clothing, apparel, food, beverage, pay bills, etc. Um, but these days, the the the, the notion of shopping and consuming has become a major activity in itself. And there's an upside to that. You know, it contributes to the economy, keeps people employed. It, uh, we're, we're buying goods and services that meet our needs. But we're also really uh, devouring the future in many respects. We are really uh, uh, buying uh, a lot of products uh, with a lot of packaging uh, that has a short life, has a single-use life, uh, it is uh, uh, electrical and electronic goods that once upon a time were more easily repaired and now difficult to repair or impossible to repair. Um, and in some cases, uh, you know, a lot of this product uh, ends up in the bin and in landfill. In other cases, some of it is recovered and recycled. Um, but we're really, uh, we're really at a point where we need to rethink our consumption patterns. Uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, you know, we are confronting some serious recycling challenges and waste challenges in Australia. Uh, we have new legislation that's going to deal with uh, banning uh, waste exports. So we're going to have to uh, uh, deal with those issues in country rather than export our, our waste problems. 
Um, so there is a real need to rethink uh, how our lifestyles. And I think in part COVID uh, is contributing uh, to us in a positive way to just rethink how we live, how we work, how we play, where we how we travel, etc. And uh, that's uh, that's an opportunity that we don't want to miss in that sense. And it is and it is part of you know that uh, that thinking around the circular economy. How do we come out of this so that we are uh, thinking more sustainably about all of those sorts of issues in a way that is not just less harm and and incremental sort of changes. But how do we look very seriously at uh, reconfiguring our lifestyles uh, in order to be more sustainable and have a sustainable future? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's so much of that uh, reconfiguration of the lifestyles is about systemic change, though, isn't it? I mean, you've said that design is the key to shaping a sustainable future, and and design parameters are set by by government standards, essentially, aren't they? Look, governments have a key role to play. Uh, manufacturers and brands have a key role to pay, play. Uh, graduate designers, engineers, marketers have a key role to play. And, of course, consumers uh, are in the hot seat in terms of being able to vote with their feet and, uh, and the dollar. Um, but good policy can really help stimulate um, more sustainable outcomes. And uh, there's no doubt that we are seeing policy shifts uh, and regulatory shifts in the European Union. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of uh, instruments and uh, incentives to get, uh, to get us thinking about the products and services that we consume. But governments have a, an important role to play. Uh, producers and manufacturers, retailers are critical. Uh, these are the uh, entities that are creating the goods and services that we consume. And I suppose we need to see much, much more activity that is circular, that is sustainable uh, from, from those businesses uh, in order to, uh, in order to uh, create a sustainable future. Part of the problem is um, we've been tinkering around the edges for a long time. You know, uh, there's been a bit of recycling here. And, you know, recycling is good. It's very good. We need to do more of it. We need to be smarter and we need to make sure that uh, those materials are going into the production of new goods and all the rest of it. But most of us will know about the waste management hierarchy and the need to avoid, to reduce, to reuse, to repair before we get to recycling. And, and that's what we're not doing enough. We're not doing enough at the top of that waste hierarchy in order to prolong the life of products, uh, their components, the materials, to extract maximum value from those, to keep them circling in the economy. Um, and that's what we need to do more of because uh, if we're to be blunt, uh, recycling in isolation of all of these other uh, options hasn't solved the problem. No. Uh, it's an important contribution and we need to do more of it. As I said, we need to do it better. And there are some great examples of uh, recycling activity in Australia and they need to continue and be supported and enhanced. I suppose what I'm saying is we need to get the balance right and we need to invest more, educate more, activate more up that hierarchy. And that means avoiding waste from the outset and thinking about circularity, uh, moving away from the take-make-waste model into uh, really keeping these materials, these products circulating in the economy. And that's what we need to see much more of. Yeah, you talk about the menace of premature obsolescence and, and of course, the right to repair. These are two sides of the, of, of the, the coin, aren't they? They are. And, um, look, it's uh, repair is something... I think repair is part of a, a broader um, desire by the public um, to redefine and rethink its relationships with products that serve us. Mm. So, yes, uh, keeping our products going longer, being able to tinker, fix, mend um, the products that we have bought, to be able to do that in a safe, cost-effective way um, is growing in popularity. Repair means different things to different people. And we are seeing in North America and the European Union uh, greater activity around the right to repair, um, to, uh, to be able to uh, keep products going longer that we have purchased and acquired. Um, 
And but it, it you know, and we're seeing uh, evidence of that in Australia in in all sorts of ways. We're seeing uh, the proliferation of re repair cafes, um, which are a wonderful community-driven approach to keeping our products going longer. And it's not just about waste. Uh, some of this is about people simply wanting to keep their products going longer. It's not just about let's you know how do we deal with e-waste or you know making sure that our toasters don't end up in landfill. That's really really important and a driver for a lot of our work. Um, but it is about people. Uh, wanting to keep their products going longer and getting the maximum value out of those rather than participating in this throwaway culture where, and especially with certain products, um, you know, things that were once upon a time quite durable, quite repairable, uh, easy to find spare parts, e easy to find a service and repair agent that could fix it in a timely, cost-effective way. You know, it's getting a bit tricky to do that these days with certain products. Mm. Um, you know, once upon a time, you know, a kettle, a toaster, an iron was repairable, very easily repairable and would last quite a long time. Some of these uh, products um, and the cheaper, lower cost products have effectively become short life, semi-disposable products. And and I think that's part of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the response from consumers is they're starting to get a bit tired of these products that should last longer, that should be more easily repaired, um, but aren't. I think part of it, it to, to be mindful of is that for those people who find repair an interesting activity, a hobby, uh, are committed to doing it themselves, DIY, that's really good and should be supported. There should be training. We need to keep it safe. Local councils, state government, et cetera, uh, should support those sorts of things. But we need to recognise that not everybody wants to fix their own products. Uh, some people simply want to keep their products going longer, get them fixed, and, and take them down to the high street and find the, the right uh, service and repair business that can do that work. Um, so we just need to be mindful that you know different people want to do different things when it comes to repair, and, uh, and that means understanding what the barriers are at the moment, uh, legally, technically, um, socially, and, uh, and, and addressing those and working collaboratively um, with uh, the key players in this space, whether it's governments, uh, whether it's manufacturers and retailers. I think collaboration is, uh, is a much better strategy than uh, combative approaches. Uh, in a sense, because at the end of the day, we need to uh, really uh, uh, get manufacturers, brands and retailers uh, thinking differently about product life and durability and repair is part of that. Um, so we you know, need to bring everyone with us on the uh, right to repair journey, I suppose, Sean. Well, on that, it seems that the uh, the federal government has delivered a Christmas present early for, uh, for those of us who are yeah. committed to that idea of right of repair in the Productivity Commission has just issued this issues paper uh, on their mm. right to repair inquiry. And uh, hopefully that will be doing just what you say, scoping those ideas, exploring uh, exactly. options. And mm. uh, so, so I think they're calling for people to make submissions. No doubt you will be uh, contributing as, as part of Product Stewardship Centre for Excellence. That's right. Look, I, you're, you're absolutely right. This is a good first step by... Uh, the Productivity Commission running this inquiry. Uh, it is an opportunity to for different sectors and industries and, and community groups um, to share their views, to share their ideas for solutions, uh, to identify the current barriers and blockages to more cost-effective, safe repair. As I said earlier, repair can mean different things to different product categories, agricultural equipment versus auto versus electronics versus furniture versus apparel, etc. So we need to get all of that down and understand what the issues are. If we know what the blockages are, we're, we're, we're a part of the way to identifying what the solutions are and how we can increase the uptake of repair, make it more mainstream. But the Productivity Commission inquiry is a really good step. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity for all sorts of organisations across the product life cycle, across the supply chain, um, to really uh, share their views about the, uh, the barriers and the enablers. What's important after the inquiry and what it discovers and publishes is that it goes the next step. And we, we need to see the uh, uh, you know, policy reform. We need to see changes in policy 
that uh, that elevate uh, the importance of repair for social reasons, for economic reasons, for uh, environmental reasons. So we need to see uh, environmental policies, waste policies, uh, uh, innovation areas of innovation all start to reflect um, the value and benefit of, of repair. So look, I, I'm very supportive of this inquiry. I think it's really going to help uncover and discover uh, all sorts of opportunities. And you know, for me, this is about what are the solutions here? We know what the issues are, be it waste, short life products, uh, people frustrated with things that can't be fixed in a straightforward way, can't get access to information uh, from, from manufacturers in some cases, uh, can't access parts, replacement parts easily. You know, the inquiry, I think, will help shed light on what's possible, what's doable. Um, but as I said, it needs to be followed up with policy, funding, procurement, um, and serious government support for repair. There is draft legislation on the right of repair already. Uh, you know, is that being presented to the parliament yet? Or do you know what state that is at? There's legislation in relation to the auto sector, Sean, is my understanding. Uh, in terms of electronics uh, and electrical goods, there isn't. However, we do now have, and you touched on it earlier, we've got the new recycling um, and Waste Reduction Act, which was just uh, uh, passed this week. There is specific reference in that act to the importance of product stewardship, the need for industries and business to take a greater role and greater responsibility in the life cycle of their products. Um, and I think we will see that legislation and more product stewardship activity contributing to more activity that's around re, uh, repair and, and reuse. So, you know, and there's also state-based initiatives. Um, most state governments are now either having place circular economy policies, uh, innovation centres, funding programs to, su to support circular activities uh, from business and from the community and research from universities. Uh, we need to see, sustain that. That needs to really just be a continuing activity and it needs to happen across government agencies can't just be something that pops out of the environment department or the EPAs or the recycling agencies. You know, if we're talking about the circular economy um, and all of these solutions, like you said earlier, it's about system-wide shifts. It's about redesigning the system, business transformation inside and out. And that has to happen across all government agencies and portfolios, yeah. transport, health, education, environment, infrastructure, um, that's when you're really looking at uh, economy-wide uh, reform. Absolutely. And I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with the term uh, circular economy, but this idea of product stewardship seems to be uh, it was slightly new. Uh, and, and uh, you know, this product stewardship centre, could you just unpack that a little bit? What is product stewardship? Who's to be the steward of these products? What's, what's that, that actually mean? Product stewardship is very much about uh, manufacturers, producers, retailers of products, organisations that put products onto the market, taking greater responsibility for those products across the life cycle. Mm. So uh, uh, in Europe, um, it tends to be called extended producer responsibility. Um, and to strip it right down, uh, it, the, the message from regulators, for example, uh, in, in the European Union is, you know, you made the product, you take it back at end of life and when the consumer's finished, make sure it doesn't cause an environmental problem. And more importantly, use that information out of that take-back process to inform the design of new products so that they are more environmentally uh, uh, preferable and oriented. But product stewardship is really about uh, taking responsibility for products beyond the point of sale, beyond the point of consumption when they reach end of life. Uh, and that means looking at, well, what does reuse and repair mean? What does remanufacturing mean for these products? Can we give them a second and third life? It also means um, how, what can we learn out of that activity in order to design those products um, to be waste-free from the outset? Uh, prevent. This is a classic case of where prevention is better than cure. Uh, there's a real parallel here with human health and, uh, and uh, design is the opportunity to intervene with that sort of uh, preventative approach. You know, some of the important stats in this space, Sean, are, you know, 80% of a product's environmental impact is determined at the design stage. 
So let's start focusing our activity at the design stage to use recycled content, design for repairability, extended product life, modularity, and make sure that there's information for consumers about how to use products in a much more um, efficient and effective way and keep a relationship going with those producers and retailers to make sure that products don't become a burden on society or the environment. Here, here. That sounds like a very positive uh, Christmas message uh, for everyone going out doing their shopping this week. John, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing it with Environmentalism Anything today. That's fine, Sean. If I can leave you with one comment. Um, uh, Vivian Westwood, the, uh, the fashion designer from the UK, many years ago had this mantra, and, and it applies to most things we consume, but basically it was, um, her, her mantra was, buy less, choose well, and make it last. If we can apply that where possible, um, we can see some really positive uh, shifts uh, in society, the economy and the environment. Thanks, Sean. Good on you, John. Thanks. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Yeah, you too. And to the listeners. Bye for now. Bye for now. That was Professor John Getsarkis from the Institute for Sustainable Futures and E-Waste Watch. Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand.